Hi, I'm Daniel Torres Dwyer, and welcome to Alice International's Career Success Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking about the transition of CPG or FMCG into the omnichannel space, which has changed radically in the last four years. To discuss this topic, we have the pleasure to have with us Sri Rajagopalan, who is currently leading the digital sales revolution as vice president and leader of e-commerce and digital sales for Johnson & Johnson Consumer Inc. Hi, Sri. Thanks for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast speak to uh, the audience today. Excellent. Well, I, I mean, I recall, Sri, four years back, before Amazon, for example, had gone into the grocery space, retailers were shy about online investment, and CPG companies were very lost or seemed very lost in terms of their approach to e-commerce, being there not much clarity on that. What's happened in this time frame in the last four years? Thanks for asking that question. That's actually a very important one that I'm very sure the audience is looking forward to seeing what's going on in the industry in general. Mm -hmm. What's really changed in the last four years is when Amazon came into the grocery space and has decided to get into it in a serious way because Amazon has realized that their ambition of being the world's largest retailer, which will take them on the road to a head-to-head -head with Walmart, there are two areas they need to focus on to get immense scale. One is grocery, because grocery drives everyday trips and mass scaling just via the multiplicity of trips. And the second one is healthcare. You know, the ecosystem that exists in CPG today and retail today is a partnership that has developed over 100 years, and the blueprint is fairly straightforward. Large companies that have deeper pockets, solid halo media that they can run on TV and print, partnered with large retailers across the world, doesn't matter which country, to have platforms and to have brands that have been dominant in the shelf. And the shelf, of course, happens to be 80 feet, 60 feet, 40 or 20, depending on the format. Is it a mass merchandiser? Is it a grocery store? Is it a convenience or a drug store? And why this effective partnership? Many of the small brands could never compete because of the limited shelf space, because from a retailer's P&L perspective, it never made sense to actually mm -hmm on a small brand as a test and learn because the velocity and turns they would lose from a large brand losing space to a small brand could not be offset for profitability purposes. What's changed is Amazon walked in with the unlimited digital shelf, which means virtually any small brand with a desire to win and understanding the tactics can easily set up and win. What's also helping the smaller brands win is this straightforward concept of the rules of the game or the rules of engagement in retail have changed. What used to be straightforward as an FSI, coupons, a display, an end cap, or focusing on the convenience and impulse aisle, and a blueprint which is pretty solid and only last 10 years has focused on optimization, has changed to brand new rules such as search, content, content that creates SEO, which is unorganic, which is organic and unearned in the first place search engine management strategies, the whole notion of using the word conquest in search where you can take over someone else's brand term, ratings and reviews where people are for the first time discussing their opinions on brands publicly and sharing them and going back and forth. None of these are skill sets the large brands have really focused on. And what's changed in the four years is I would call this rude awakening for large brands that 
if we don't learn the tricks and tips in the trade of the smaller brands, we will not be in business 10 years from today because the smaller brands have now got a true platform by means of which they can emerge and actually rule in this space. And that has been the single biggest change, I would tell you, in the last um, four years. And I would tell you, I sum all that up as we've got the new rules of engagement driven by the ankle brighter brands. Uh-huh. And do you think that there's still a chance for CPG companies? Because four years ago, that was part of the conversation. Is there still time for CPG companies to set up their own platform? Or will you think they'll definitely outsource those to retailers since they seem to have been taking the lead in the capability building? What a great question, Daniel. So I don't see a world in this new retail environment where CPG companies have an option but to actually experiment with their own platform, which we lovingly all called as direct-to-consumer. And what I, mean, what I mean by that is, you know, most people hesitate and say, why should we in the first place do this? Because our partnership with retail has existed over years. A handful of things that people should think about when it comes to D2C and answer those questions and really get into D2C only if it's meaningful for them. So why don't I go over what those things are? Number one, there needs to be acceptance that D2C is not going to go away anytime soon. There are many famous brands world over. The one that everybody keeps talking about is obviously Dollar Shave Club, but there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of small brands who collectively represent, I would say, 90% of the growth in a majority of CPG categories. So not recognizing that itself is wrong in the first place. So that comes number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is... What we spoke about earlier, acknowledging that the rules of the game have changed and via D2C, you can play out the whole ecosystem of search, content, assortment, ratings and reviews, and things of that nature much easier than you can when the shelf is not owned by you. Third, with the pace of digital change that's taking place in the environment, nobody can be a one-trick pony anymore, and D2C serves as an amazing platform for launching innovation, for doing tests and learns for doing sampling with limited to no risk. And in fact, when an innovation is built even for a brick-and-mortar retailer for the shelf, there's no better way at very low risk to test whether the innovation will work, et cetera, to gather the data via a CRM. And when it's launched at a retailer, to make sure things are bought together to succeed with that data that comes from D2C. A handful of other things to think about, right? The blueprint itself for D2C. How would you deliver? How would you fulfill products? You have to make sure time is invested in making sure how that's done. What assortment is offered up that's unique in the DDC space versus what's on the shelf and what's at a retailer like in Amazon or sold as a 3P model on um, Alibaba? The next one I would say is patience. Just like the brick and mortar ecosystem was built over 50 years, 100 years, DDC is still, I would say, while the infancy stage has passed and now we're in the mid-range of a maturity curve, it's probably a P&L, true P&L in D2C to make it highly profitable, takes somewhere between 24 and 36 uh, months to get done. And uh, these are the things to kind of consider. But mm-hmm. the reasons to do D2C, number one, I would say relationship marketing one-on-one with the consumer. It's the best opportunity and a platform to build and sustain those relationships. Data collections via CRM. I think enough said about CRM, people are painfully familiar what that means. The whole notion of constant surprise and delight 
for the consumer via packaging, sampling, agile innovation, constant every single month. And then she, the shopper or mom, is on a choice of where to shop. So to give her one more choice, do you have to go to the store? Do you have to order it and receive it from an Amazon or a Alibaba? Why not get it directly for the company where she might want to provide her opinion on the brand directly to the manufacturer? Um, and then, can can a company build the ecosystem and bring about a fair and equitable balance via where to buy on their brand websites and using social media as relevant for test and learn purposes for launching innovation? Make sure they take advantage of D2C. I hope that helps, Daniel. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Along these lines, actually, do you think that CPG companies are on the right track and have made most of the structural changes they had to for the next 20 years, like creating e-commerce or digital departments within? Or do you think that there's still work to be done? So I tell you, there's a massive difference between the larger companies and the smaller companies. You know, the iconic Fortune 500 companies that we all love dearly and have... uh, huge market cap are still, I would say, um, emerging from the, I need to understand, I need to play catch up, and I need to take action. A handful of large companies like uh, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, you know, the usual suspects, we here at Johnson & Johnson, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, have indeed made the move out from, let me watch and see what happens, to acting very quickly. And a lot of this information publicly comes out on Wall Street every single day. But I would tell you, if you measured capabilities, systems, the ability to do agile decision-making. None of these companies are truly structured via their P&L models and their operating models to really do agile decision-making. So the area where all of them are focusing on in 2018 is not so much the search and the content and the assortment and the ratings and reviews, which all of them now fully understand are a must-do at 800 miles an hour, It's really on how do we do agile decision-making? How do we act on the trend within the next three months and not take two years to create an innovation? That's where all the large companies are spending their time in 2018. So to really answer your question, I think the movement and time has arrived and people have woken up and said, we need to get serious about this space, organize and get going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of industries have been disrupted in the 21st century, like retail, for example, which we just mentioned with the example of Amazon coming in. But when you go into a supermarket and you look at the shelves, the products don't seem to have varied down that much compared to 20 years ago. What categories in FMCG do you believe are more prone to be disrupted in the next 10 years? So think about categories where the touch and feel of the actual product display on a shelf is less relevant. Think about categories which have a what I would call a needed now or an immediacy or an urgency of getting the product. So one area where I see there's going to be a massive transformation in the next five years, 10 years, is going to be in the area of over-the-counter medications. Now, in many countries, of course, there are regulations around over-the-counter medication yeah. being dispensed via pharmacist or not, but I even anticipate legislation change then. So imagine a mom with a baby at home who has a fever. Would she rather drive to the store, carry a crying baby, walk through the shelf aisles and pick a fever medication or click a couple buttons on her smartphone and have the product within one hour? So I, I see massive disruption coming in OTC. Another area which has already been disrupted 
and things are moving 800 miles an hour is in the area of beauty, skin care, facial care, wrinkle removers, acne care, moisturizers, things of that nature, where usually when a person likes a certain product that they test and learn, they stick to it for life because it works with them on their skin. Imagine the value of a subscription model where once you like a brand and you choose to subscribe and it shows up every 30 days at your door at a price that you like and you have very little work to do in the process of going somewhere, all that time you save in the process and still get to interact with the brand. And if you don't like it or you have comments for the brand, a couple clicks, you can actually share those comments. So I see massive disruption has already taken place in beauty and skincare will continue. And finally, I would say the single biggest area of disruption outside of these that's upcoming in the next five years is day-to-day grocery. Non-perishables, I see a large portion of the category shifting from in-store purchases to subscription-backed home delivery services. Mm -hmm. It could be an Amazon, could be a third-party fulfillment, could be an Instacart, even could be a retailer delivering to your house in the first place. But I see a massive change coming directly led by two factors. One, convenience. Two, pricing transparency. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it seems like we're off to some exciting years to come. Sri, thanks a lot for your input. I think it's really interesting. Thank you so much, Daniel. I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you and your listeners. Excellent. Well, thanks, Sri, again, and thanks to our listeners as well. And see you in the next edition of uh, Alice International Career Success Podcast.